0: Welcome to Off Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. My guest today is actor Kelly O'Coin. Kelly is best known for playing cult favorite Dollar Bill Stern on Showtime's Billions and Pastor Tim, known to fans as Pastor Groovy Hair, on FX's iconic drama, The Americans. Last year, he starred in Hulu's The Girl from Plainville and Apple TV's We Crashed, and is currently filming the FX limited series The Sterling Affairs. Other recurring TV roles include New Amsterdam, The Bold Type, House of Cards, and Turn, Washington's Spies. He's also got a host of film and theater credits, including playing Octavius Caesar in Julius Caesar on Broadway opposite Denzel Washington, and being a part of the Drama Desk Award-winning ensemble cast of the Wayside Motor Inn at Signature Theatre. He spent many years in regional theatre as well and is a former member of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival Acting Company. He's also a graduate of Oberlin College, where I had the pleasure of acting with him in the musical Runaways way back in the day. Kelly, welcome to Awfully Charts.
1: Hey, awesome, thank you for asking me. God, it's been a minute.
0: I know. Thanks so much for doing this. Absolutely. So, yeah, let's talk about your journey. I've been kind of listening and reading all the interviews, and I had seen and really appreciated your work in both House of Cards and The Americans. And I hadn't yet seen Billions when I asked you to do the interview, because I had been a little like, oh, I don't know if this is my thing. You know, all Uh these testosterone-driven men talking about money. But then once I started watching it, I was totally hooked, because it's really funny. And then also just... Really sharp writing and really great actors, so I'm glad I had a reason to to dive into that.
1: I am too. Yeah, my character is one of the more toxic of the lot, and it's so funny to play something so completely different from me, just like a 180. Everything politically, what he's good at, I I, I don't know money at all. I can barely add, and it's so it it's really fun to play something so different. It's really fun to misbehave in a consequence-free environment of, of fiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do find it a bit jarring sometimes when I meet people who are fans of the show and fans of my character who obviously find him aspirational. That can be a little difficult to, to swallow. But in general, people are like, oh my God, he's a lunatic. That's so fun, you know? <laughs> <So> <laughs> hopefully there are more people like that than the uh, the former.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like ax and dollar bill they they do these terrible things to people but then they're also really charismatic and they're the ones you find them yourself rooting for you know i mean the, the attorney general <laughs> originally district attorney is, is pretty evil too in the long run but even when he seems righteous you can't really root for him cuz he's so kind of yummy
1: yeah it's true it's um they do a good job of making it difficult to to know who to root for i think we're it, we are naturally, we're used to rooting for someone, to putting it in that kind of binary. And when we do, we realize, oh my, same thing happened with the Americans in, in a different way. You were rooting for these people who were actual murderers. Forget what, I mean, the, the fact that they were trying to bring down the United States. They also were just balls out murderers. And you find yourself rooting for them, of course, because that's how it's structured. And that's the brilliance of that show, and maybe in the brilliance of billions to find redo for these guys who aren't necessarily murderers. But I wouldn't put it past them if they can make an extra million. Two things happen: we realize the the limitations of the binary way of thinking of people, and, and the utter falsehood of solid good and solid evil people. Yeah, I find that I find that fascinating. I think that's more interesting to me than than the easy comfort of uh, of knowing exactly who we're supposed to uh, who we are supposed to root for.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. Tell me about your process when you're creating a character. So let's say you you got the script, you're looking at it. What process do you go through to figure out who these guys are and how you're going to channel them?
1: It's interesting now. It's been so long. I realized it was eight years ago we shot the pilot. So the the process early on was a lot different than, than it is now when we know the characters and we just go in and we play the given circumstances because the characters are sort of second nature. I think one of the first things I do honestly, is I try to memorize as uh, deeply as and as quickly as possible, because I feel the process of necessarily memorization means you're going over the lines, over and over and over in your head. And so you are, you're reading the script, you're diving in deeply to the, what's written on the page and you're committing it to memory. I think it, that gives me this freedom in the moment. I can, we don't have, there's no rehearsal time in TV. So it's all sort of in the moment my synapses are firing because I'm not searching for words and and I can feed off of the other person more easily. The first, God, it's so... I I have trouble, you'll discover during this interview, I I sometimes have trouble putting uh, these things into words or terminology. I didn't go to grad school, so I didn't get a shorthand. I don't really have a lexicon, but a lot of people who did go to grad school have. I know with Dollar Bill, there was stuff on the page, just the way he was written. He didn't have a lot to say in the pilot, but the way he spoke There was a terseness, there was a bit of jargon that he used that was, uh, and a secret that he and Axe had There was, he used his, if anyone here listening has seen the show, one of Bill's catchphrases is, I am not uncertain. And it's, it's one of the cues he gives to his boss that I've got everything covered and most of it's probably not legal. You don't have to know about it. I didn't tell you that wink, you know, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. So you get a sense of, of the character from just even that one scene, that one little, little exchange, and then you build from there. You make quick choices. I found myself standing with my legs further apart than I usually do, taking up space, you know, demonstrating that his power to people. I started shaving my head closer. I used to have a little bit of a buzz, but then I started going closer and closer to the skin cause I thought Dollar bill was a blunt instrument and that would sort of be a, a physical manifestation of something like that, my jaw hurt a little bit at the end of the day when I would after working he's a very tense mm-hmm. he's coiled uh he's ready to fight constantly mm-hmm. and so those are just quick choices I made because you have to come up with something in tv you don't necessarily know where the characters are going to go mm-hmm. or even the next time you're going to be in an episode but you uh you make choices that are going to be fun to play that make sense with what's on the page mm-hmm. and yeah and then hope that the showrunners or the director will help guide you in a certain way if, if they think you're off or if they like oh I like that now try this and then ooh on that note let's 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 play that even more or maybe just take back 10% of that but I like it you know that kind of thing so it's a very collaborative process in the moment
0: so when you're memorizing are you saying the lines out loud and then just that repetition is kind of getting the character's rhythms into your body in some way
1: yeah absolutely early on I am try, try to just do lines more more monotone without any inflection. But then as I'm starting to get closer, I find if I'm adding character to it or adding choices to the memorization process and the repetition, that it comes more easily because it's more real. Like at that stage in the memorization, it is actually character work too.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Now you said you don't get as much rehearsal in TV as you do in theater, right? Nowhere near. Do you get any rehearsals? Oh, None.
1: Almost none, yeah. You go to set, you go to your hair and makeup, and then you wait in your dressing room, and PA tells you, they'd like to invite you to set. That's usually the way they say it, and I just, that's so sweet, okay, well, I'll, I accept. <laughs> uh, and they bring you to set, and you everyone shows up, director has everyone quiet down, and you just read. You read it out loud. And then he's like, all right, let's get this on its feet. And then you sort of move to different, he has a general idea of what might look good, what might be more efficient an efficient way of shooting it, and then you come up with ideas like whether or not you're sitting down at your desk, or whether or not you're standing over here or coming in the door, or there was a scene, again, people who don't know the show won't necessarily pick up all the references, but Dollar Bill and Spiros, my character Dollar Bill, and Ari Spiros, who's this fastidious, he's um, compliance, he's the compliance officer. And so it's kind of like Oscar and Felix and the odd couple. I'm very like spread out sloppy and he's very hilarious
0: hilarious together
1: we had a great time he's a great guy he's one of my best friends now (laughs) um but we sat down for a uh, a session with the counselor in her office and we all just crammed into the room and we just he and i both sat on the couch we were going to be filming in and i naturally just did the wide open spread and he naturally did this thing in the corner where he had his he was arms crossed and legs crossed and and they were like oh well that's it (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, and that's from season four. We we knew the characters well enough. They're sort of ingrained in you and you, you just, you start taking up space like they do. But that's it on rehearsal. So you'll maybe they'll, they'll decide, yeah, you walk over there, you come over here, okay, we'll just sit here and then, great, all right, let's bring in the crew. And then they see how they're going to light it. They can see how they're going to, what they're going to do with sound, what they're going to, what they have to set up to make the scene work. That's it. And- mm-hmm. The thing that I was just alluding to about really inhabiting these characters after a while is what happens, I've learned, over the course of a number of seasons, that the backstory, which is made up of all the scenes you've shot previously, takes the place of a lot of rehearsal. My early days on film sets and TV sets, I just thought, oh, I'm just inherently not as good at this as I am in stage acting. I'm fine but I can't knock it out of the park like I know I can sometimes on stage. And it turned out to be two things. One, I couldn't get a good night's sleep because I'm a theater person and I wasn't used to waking up at four in the morning. And that's when I, I started taking Ambien. I'm not advocating Ambien, but if there's something you can do that helps you get at least six hours of sleep before you're shooting, do it with moderation.
0: Wow. Wow. Uh, that would be That would be hard for me too. Wow.
1: Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, melatonin or if edibles or anything, those weren't legal at the time. Now they are, so I don't rely on it anymore. Everyone calm down. It's fine. I'm fine. <laughs> uh, don't worry about Kelly. I know you were really worried. You're going to write a strongly worded letter. But then the other thing is I, I realized I just, I didn't have rehearsal and I wasn't used to making those immediate bold choices. I was used to finding the bold choices uh, along the way. And so I got more sleep, which also allowed me to come in firing with ideas and not worry about being too big or too, or too wackadoodle or or anything. You just, you try stuff and the director will normally seize on, on one of them and you, you go that direction. It's also for a lot of those early roles, there wasn't a ton to do. And so the, whatever I auditioned with was probably what they're going to want on set. So. As long as you're within a week or so of your audition, then you get to, then you can remember that, you can recall that. It's funny this gig I'm shooting right now in LA. We started in late October. I think my first day was November third or something like that. And I had auditioned in April, and so I was about a week out. I was like, "What did I do? I don't, I don't remember <laughs> what I what I did." And so I actually got the casting person to send me a a tape of what the audition was. And uh, I was like, oh, right. Yeah, okay. I know. I know.
0: Oh, what's the project?
1: It's called The Sterling Affairs. It's based on a 30 for 30 podcast by Ramona Shelburne, who is a sports journalist and awesome. She's an awesome person. It's about Donald Sterling, who is the former owner of the Los Angeles Clippers and the big scandal that forced him to sell the team. I'm playing Andy Roser, who is the president of Basketball Operations, was for the Clippers, and sort of an enabler. My take on him is that he was he was an enabler for for Sterling, and he went down with the rest of the, the main ownership staff when the scandal hit.
0: Mm. Well, you're a sports fan, right? So that must have been kind of fun.
1: Basketball in particular. I, uh, I'm a fanatic Portland Trailblazer fan. And we were watching this show called Winning Time, on HBO, which is about the Los Angeles Lakers uh, rise in the seventies. And my wife, Carolyn, who I think you may know from Oberlin too, she remembers me turning to her and saying, when we were watching that show, I want to get a basketball show. And then about two weeks later, I had this audition. So. Oh, that's so cool. Manifested something. I, I put it out to the universe and it came back. I, this is some power. I gotta be careful.
0: Yeah, seriously. (laughs) (laughs) So. It seems like when you're acting for TV or film, you have to make a lot more choices ahead of time on your own, without direction, necessarily. But then when you come in, you also have to be open to changing everything, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, you do. It's I've been on sets where people do not come prepared, and it's a boring set to work on because everyone's playing it ends up playing safe seems to me anyway. It's great to work on a show where people come in and they know their characters, they know their lines, and they're willing to try stuff and they're really playing ball with you. Eh, sports metaphor, I use it all the time. Uh, <laughs> speaking of basketball, but I like when people are engaging and they're not so—they're highly prepared, but they're but they can transcend the preparation and they can let it go. Because they're so deeply invested in you, and in, they're in your eyes, you know, and you guys are are, are vibing so well that you could throw things away, or it'll inherently be there, and you can still come up with spontaneous things because you've built this base. You know where you are. You've got stuff to fall back on. That's when it gets exciting. I think that was really happening by the end of season one for us, because we'd all been working long together. There was a scene that I was doing with Damien Lewis, who was playing Bobby Axelrod, where we were had this huge argument scene. He's in a glass office with soundproof windows, and so he brings me in, and he tells everyone he's pissed at me, and he looks at me after the door closes, and he's like, pretend we're having an argument. And it's like, fuck you. I love you. I love you, too. It was so (laughs) fun. Yes, that's
0: an incredible scene. I love that scene. It's hilarious. (laughs)
1: When I first read that, I think I yelped in the other room and I came running to show Caroline because I was like, this is going to be so much fun. And, you know, you prepare, the only way you can really, really prepare for something like that is to make sure you have all your lines down pat because the rhythm of that scene is so dependent upon overlaps and cutting off at the right time. And the whole show is very rhythmic in, in its, uh, in its dialogue, but... A scene like that in particular. And then you have to make little little decisions like how quickly does the bill process Oh, this is this is a piece of strategy that boss is, is working on. Or how long does he look bewildered? Like, wait, what are you saying? Why are you yelling at me these nice things? You know, making choices like that. But even then you can vary, you can try, well, let's try it if he gets it right away. Let's try if, if he's an idiot for a little bit longer, things like that.
0: And then they do a part of the storytelling when they're cutting it together too, right? In theater, you have the luxury of all this rehearsal, but then when you're filming, you have the luxury of them getting to do multiple takes, right? And take the best one of each. Or...
1: They do. They do, which, yeah, it's uh, that could be a blessing and a curse too. Like Both of them can, I suppose. You over-rehearse, that sometimes could be an issue actually on either type of platform. And The way that we attack scenes on TV, which requires a lot of spontaneity, can get dampened and deadened if you are doing multiple takes, at least I I find that to be the case sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that happens in in a theatrical rehearsal process as well, but you then push through that and get out to the other end after a couple of weeks, and then things can become more spontaneous again, just inherently, which is sort of the magic of the theater rehearsal process. With this, you on TV, you don't have the chance to get past when something might get stale, or at least you have to find another way to make it not be stale anymore. And that is where that, I, I say this phrase all the time, but the ferocious listening comes into play. You have to be so with your partner and be willing to let go of things that an actual spontaneous moment will happen because maybe he or she or they... Maybe they just did something slightly different, then you can feed on that to be your boost into something that uh, slightly different territory. So it's still fresh or feels fresh.
0: I love yeah. that notion of ferocious listening. Like that is the action. That is <laughs> the
1: single most important thing with all acting, I think, is to be a ferocious listener. I can see really good, talented actors. I can see when they're not when they've got their performance pat and it's, it's a good quality performance and it's a smart performance, but there's something missing. And it's that, that transcending of the choices that you make so that you're actually living it. And it's so thrilling. Even, a, um, sometimes even an actor who might not have quite the skills of another actor who can do that and does do that and listens ferociously. That's, I, I sometimes I see that an actor like that and I just think that's I would choose that over the other any day of the week as an audience member.
0: Mm, that's great. Yeah. I'm curious who you've worked with over the years, teachers, directors, other actors that have really impacted you and had an effect on, on the way you do your work and where you feel like, oh, wow, I learned something in this experience.
1: I like to think that I, I learn from everybody I work with and pick up something. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question. Billions is the first show I've been on where I've been in, I've been there day in and day out, every episode or nearly every episode from the beginning. So this last year during season six, when Damien left and the character left and my character was so tied up with loyalty to Bobby, I was, I started my own company and I wasn't in as many episodes. It freed me up to do a lot of other shows, which was great. And I found myself It was the first time in a long time that I would, I had a recurring role or a major role on, on another show. And the difference, it felt so different to be on set, the first day on set, the first weeks on set were so different than they had been previously. I think I had learned through the process, I had learned how to be an effective professional more than I'd ever had before. And so I could enter the the process without even knowing it, I was entering it with a, a greater confidence than I had before. Instead of sort of like feeling my way, I was, oh, here I am. I'm here to do this job. I know this character and, you know, no, no apology or no, no backfootedness. So I think that's not a person that I learned from, but it's a, it's a whole bunch of people, I guess, that I learned from it and a, and a process that I learned from. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been great. I've loved that, that feeling. Cause again, it's, it's all about comfort and a solidity and whatever can make you spontaneous in the moment, whatever helps you get the synapses firing in a way that is free. that allows you to be much more creative in your choices. And that's the key to TV acting. Without rehearsal, you need to be able to bring something, come up with something and not force it. It just has to fire. You have to be able to to fire. And if you are feeling comfortable, if you're feeling well-rested, and if you really don't, you're not searching for your lines. You're not if you thought about it ahead of time. You can really flow, mm. and those are thrilling moments. Those are thrilling moments. You can feel the difference. I said this before in another interview, but but I, I it just occurred to me that the way to phrase it, that, like what flow feels like to me when something's really working, it's like you're trying to open a a window, and usually you're struggling you're using both arms and you get getting your back into it. But flow is when you can open it with two fingers. You know, it just feels different.
0: Oh, I love that. And
1: the, um, uh, the other person, the one person I'll say who gave me, uh, was very influential probably cause he gave me some confidence, a guy named Sandy McCollum, who was a veteran actor at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival for decades. I think. I think he was approaching 80 when I got to know him, he took a liking to me for some reason. He used to call me a oh, coin of the realm, a like, oh, coin of the realm, and, uh, <laughs> he told me, it's like, you're good. You're a good actor. You may not work for a while. I was like, what? It's like, just listen, you may not work for a while, but keep at it, keep you know, working, keep getting better. And pretty soon you'll be 40, 35, 45, and people will start dropping out and you'll have more, you'll get more roles. And he was like, and then when you get like me, you turn like 60, 65, people are going to start dying and then you're really going to work. <laughs> oh <my laughs> and, God. Um, And I, I, I haven't got to that latter part and I'm not, I'm not hoping for anyone's death, but there's something about having someone who you admire say, stick it out, that exerts a huge influence or did on me. And I, as I've also said before, I am the proverbial tortoise. I had created a theater career where I was able to make a living, but I, TV came much later than it did for a lot of my peers and I'd say every time I was about to, I mean, I don't know, despair. Somebody, somebody of influence, whether it was an actor who I really admired or a director or a casting director. And there were some amazing independent casting directors in particular, a handful of women who filled this role for me, who would give an encouraging word. Just say something like, no, you're good. No, oh, you were this close or you don't understand. Everyone loves your tape. That's not the reason why you're not booking yet. It was almost like there there was a strategy in the universe that at the right time, somebody would say something and it buoyed me enough that I could keep going, even though I wasn't making any money really, or I was having uh, trouble getting work. So those are the types of people, I guess, that have had a big influence on me, just keeping me in it. And then every actor I work with, I try to steal something, any actor I like, something about Damien's stillness something about Paul Giamatti's flamboyance. Oh, and Matthew Reese from the Americans, both of them actually, the stillness that they had. I'm really drawn to that because I'm much more, a much more physical person and I, I move a lot. Even right now, looking at myself on Zoom and I'm like, my hands are just all over the place. When I'm on the phone, my wife makes fun of me because I'm, I'm gesturing constantly and pacing because I like movement. I'm drawn to people who do things, who are good at things that I don't inherently bring to the table. And... I think I've grown much more comfortable with stillness as an actor over the decades, partially because I'm watching these people who are so still. And what kind of power can you generate by withholding your movement and your energy? And what kind of power can you generate through the, the anticipation of energy being released? That kind of stuff really intrigues me technically in uh, in acting.
0: Mm, I love that. Yeah. I think that's, that's something about maturing as an actor, right? When you're young, you feel like you have to do everything and maybe- yeah more like allowing as you, as you grow, which is really sort of true in life too, right? Yeah. (laughs) We don't have to muscle our way into anything we want to happen. There's this kind of opening that comes with maturity.
1: Yeah. That's a great way to put it. I think that's true. I love that, that the idea that that mirrors life. I mean, and that shouldn't, I mean, acting should mirror life, it's a representation of it. It shouldn't be a surprise that the process of acting would also mirror life.
0: Yeah, I love your your story. I heard you say in other interviews, there was no plan B. You were just going to do this. And I understand you right after college drove across the country with a van handing out headshots.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was the idea. So I I had a Volkswagen bus that, this is the sign of the times, my parents told me they bought for my graduation for 400 bucks or 600 bucks or something like that. Love Um, it. I know, crazy. Yeah, I I drove around the country. The idea was to drop off at a lot of different theaters, I didn't get that far. I ran out of money in Portland, Oregon, which is where we're from. My parents had a apartment there and I crashed there for a month and worked in a steel mill in the recycling area to make enough money to get back across the country. While I was there, I saw some audition notices for a Portland theater and I got into a play. And then from there, I got another play, two of the leads in the play I was in were going to be playing husband and wife and they needed a son. For this play called the subject was roses they were having trouble casting, casting it yes uh, and uh they brought me into the director and then i got in so then i stayed for another play and then that director was a veteran of the oregon shakespeare festival and encouraged me along with a couple other people to audition for the oregon shakespeare festival which i did and as soon as the play was done i I'd moved down to la to be with carolyn and i got a call to go back up to to ashland and uh and do a season with them so all. From that one, from running out of money and having to stay there and having to work my way back across the country, that led to my first three professional gigs. And Oregon Shakespeare Festival in particular was a big break early on that uh, I needed. Then it was really slow from there. Then I did move to LA and I worked on exactly zero projects and followed Carolyn to New York where she wanted to dance. And uh, it took a while, but things slowly started to come together after that.
0: But so the uh, guy who said, wait till your 40s, you're really going to be working, was kind of right. I mean, you were right. working before then, but but for your sort of star to really rise.
1: Yeah, he it, it's for different reasons than he said. Fortunately, no one's died.
0: <laughs> but, right, yes.
1: Uh, <laughs> but yeah, he, he is. I really, I've been using this phrase lately, but it's uh, when I'm talking to people, you got to embrace the tortoise sometimes my career has been tortoise-like in a way, but it's worth the wait. I hate to say this, because it's, again, this is sort of binary, but doing it the right way, by which I mean creating your community, working and still getting better and taking joy in the work itself, taking pleasure in other people's accomplishments and not looking at being, uh, I'm not competitive, but I am very uh, uh, ambitious, being ambitious, but not competitive as much as possible. Because that's what leads to bitterness, and that's what's going to lead you. Of course, you're going to compare yourself to other people periodically. That's just human. But trying to keep that at bay as much as possible and recognize it for what it is. Hopefully, it'll be a, there'll be fleeting thoughts, and you can actually say, "Not oh, he got a gig. Why I'm never going to work because he got you know he's doing this." But look at it as oh, this is my friend. He got it, so it's it's possible for people like us, you know. Or look at it that way. I can do that because my friend did it.
0: Yeah. And being ambitious for the work itself. That's what I try to do when I feel. There's a quote from Natalie Goldberg, who um, she's a writer who wrote a sort of, I don't know, writer's Bible called Writing Down the Bones. And she said, um, don't think too much about success. Success will come in this life or the next. Don't worry, keep writing.
1: (laughs) I love that. Yeah. It
0: it has to. You, You can't,
1: of course, we all want comforts and we all want success and and yes we want success in, in the more traditional way too but you can't that can't be the number one motivation you cannot enter into this business or any art to become famous to become rich if any of that stuff happens it'll be it'll be a consequence of the work you do and ideally work that you feel strongly about it'll be a consequence of just getting better because you're you're you're, you're living and breathing this stuff and yeah. I know that's hard. It's very hard at times. We all we all need certain things to survive. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a capitalistic society and we can't even our safety nets are getting weaker. So you know, we don't have to get into politics. But yeah, we, we do need to eat and have a roof over our heads. But absolutely, got to find yeah. a way not to obsess about it.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, I'm glad you did mention politics, because that reminded me, I wanted to ask you about, there was something you posted a while ago that I really love, where you said, uh, you posted this on social media, when people tell me to stay in my lane, I tell them I never left. This is my lane. I've been in it all my life. And it's about yeah. your activism. And there were pictures of you yeah. as a kid at rallies. And and I'm wondering if there, how you see your life as an artist intersecting with your life as an activist, if if you do see that.
1: I love that with the the mild notoriety that I've been getting over the past ten years or so, people seek me out on occasion to to advocate for causes that I think are pretty awesome. Uh, voting rights and voter suppression has been a big one, and uh, I'm on the board of an autism rights and awareness organization.
0: Called I love that. City. I'm an an autism parent, so thank you for that.
1: Absolutely, we should talk more offline uh, about them. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I I love that it's afforded me the opportunity to to help causes that I think are fantastic. Mainly for me, it's raising money or or speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that my speaking skills are a direct result of being comfortable in front of people. I still freak out more when I'm about to give a speech or a toast or something that I do with a script. It's really funny uh, Mm -hmm. because you can't hide behind it. So I guess that's the way it intersects more than anything else.
0: Does it impact your choices at all of projects?
1: Yes. Even, be- so before I was making any money at all, I was offered an audition for, it was an ad, I can't remember much about it, but it was an ad for a coal company, for the coal industry. And it was, I didn't want to do it. As an environmentalist, and then um, I thought that the ad was manipulative. manipulative. I thought it was uh, painting an incredibly, well, no, it's an ad, uh, a one-sided picture, a uh, misleading picture of, of of the issue of of coal, so I said no, and really could have used the money at the time, but that was that was beyond the pale. I don't mind playing people who are evil. I don't mind playing people who are who disagree with my worldview because I think it's actually interesting for those voices to be heard. There was a controversy. There was an actor who was playing Hitler about maybe ten years ago, uh, the early years when he was an artist, and there was a lot of controversy because they were portraying him trying to get into his brain and play him as a, um, as a real three-dimensional human being. And I think that's a misguided way of looking at it. I mean, we have to, the man was evil, but we have to recognize that human beings can be evil. We can't think of them as other. They are human. They come from the same stuff we come from. So that evil to understand that evil, we have to understand that that's not, this is not some alien who dropped down from, from the moon. This is a human being. How do we, how do we fight this? How do we deal with evil? if we can't even see what it is and so I don't mind playing villains uh
0: yeah totally agree with you on that yeah
1: dollar bill is definitely a villain there are a couple people who have sometimes when people find out on Twitter in particular that I'm a lefty they get mad and they get mad in a way that the tenor of the anger is like you were lying to us (laughs) (laughs) You pull the wool over our eyes. Uh, a
0: little bit unclear on the concept of what an actor is. <laughs> yeah,
1: actor, yeah. And then if I'm ever arguing about, you know, Dollar Bell would never do that, Bobby would never, you know, they would never, how could you think that? I'm mean, like, you know, he's a criminal, right? You know, literally a criminal. <laughs> that usually shuts them off.
0: Really not meant to be uh, a role model?
1: <laughs> not, not a role model per se. Yeah. I've gotten off of, what was the, what was the
0: question? I, oh, I, well, initially it was about how your activism intersects with your oh, whole... Oh, right. Yes, yeah.
1: I do think that, I mean, maybe because a certain part of the Billions fan base perhaps will listen, maybe listen to me spouting some leftist stuff when I wouldn't to, to others just because they like the show. So maybe there's a chance to reach people. And I do try to be as civil as possible. I don't lead with anger, which is sometimes hard on Twitter, especially now, but... Mm-hmm. uh yeah. I get so angry. That particular tweet was a response, as you can imagine, to feedback I was getting at the time. And I still get, but less so. Literally, stay in your lane. That's that's stupid.
0: Right. Like, like artists aren't people and they aren't supposed to be engaged in the public discourse. That's a bizarre point of view.
1: <laughs> right. So did you tell your plumber? Not just to stay in his lane. Did you tell? Um, you know, I remember Joe the Plumber was celebrated. Uh, it was I can't remember what the election was, but this is during the Obama years. It just boggles my mind that because of my profession, suddenly I'm not supposed to participate in the in the American democracy project that we have going here. Hanging on by a thread, I might add.
0: Yes, and ideally, our artists are actually engaged in the public discourse. That's yes. what art does, right?
1: Yes, and has historically. It's, it's it's just it's such a it's so misguided. And I actually, you know, and I'll be honest. So there's some a handful of of uh, right wing actor people who are active on Twitter as well. And I will scold or admonish people who agree with me uh, normally agree with me. When they try to get them to shut up it's like oh a failed actor wants to tell me this woman and i was like D- no don't don't do that engage him or her or them through their ideas or with about their ideas not about their about what they do you know we get pissed when republicans were trying to diminish aoc by saying she's a former bartender it's like fuck you she's a congressperson now and she worked through what did you do what did you did you have to work were you just handed uh, a million dollars like donald trump first out of college you know like how do we think we can diminish people and exclude them from anything having to do with democracy in this country based on what they do yeah it just boggles my mind
0: yeah now i hear you well we are almost out of time i did want to ask before we go i know you got to work with i know (laughs) you did julius caesar on broadway with denzel washington so i wanted to say what's it like working with denzel
1: it I think it cured me of being intimidated by by star people, by uh, by celebrities, because you can't get much bigger than him. There were a handful of other people who were were famous to different degrees on the show who, I think under normal circumstances, I would have been intimidated by. But because you had Denzel freaking Washington in the room, everyone else was like, oh, cool. Hi. How are you? Hi, how's it going? Um, <laughs> but he also, he was great. He had a hard role and um so he kept to himself a little bit, but he, he would he would show up in the green room and get coffee, chat with people a little bit. You know, he was not aloof in the least. He's certainly it's like a planet. He's got so much gravitational pull that it could have he could have thrown everything off, but it didn't. He he was a, on top of being a great leader for that show, he was a great ensemble member, which is interesting. That's I've described Damian Lewis that way on billions, but it's true. I mean, he's the alphaist of alphas and I think knows it and wears it. Uh, in a way that's not toxic in the least. At least wasn't. And he's he was fun to work with on stage.
0: That's great to be able to hold both those qualities, to lead and be in the mix at the same time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, we, my character was very, like, needling in, in his face about some stuff. And we got the last word in this, the one big scene we had together. And I remember just thinking I wanted to go to apologize to him every time. I was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just, it's just the character, you know. <laughs> it was... But it was it was really it was really fun. It was a fun way to make a Broadway debut, mm.
0: I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, Kelly, thank you so much. This has been great, and I, I wish we could keep talking because I got lots more questions. I'll just have to have you back another time. <laughs> that would be
1: great. This was really this was really fun.
0: Thank you for listening to Off Leash Arts Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. You can find this and past episodes online at offleasharts.com and at all places you get your podcasts. Editorial assistance and theme music was provided by Asher Witkin. Join us again next time for more conversations with creative people. Until then, take good care and stay off-leash.